Hey everyone, it's Manoush here. You're going to notice this episode sounds a little different than usual. I'm trying to stay safe by recording myself at home, and we are so grateful to our guests for recording themselves at home too and helping us bring this episode to you. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. Our job now is to dream big. Delivered at TED conferences. To bring about the future we want to see. Around the world. To understand who we are. From those talks, we bring you speakers and ideas that will surprise you. You just don't know what you're going to find. Challenge you. We truly have to ask ourselves, like, why is it noteworthy? And even change you. I literally feel like I'm a different person. Yes. (laughs) Do you feel that way? Ideas worth spreading. From TED and NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and to start the show, I want to travel back for a moment to a time you've probably been hearing about a lot lately, to the 1918 Spanish flu. Yes, so, I mean, just to give you a tiny bit of perspective, uh, around 18, 18 million people are thought to have died in the First World War, and the numbers we work with today, though they are uncertain, are between 50 and 100 million dead for the Spanish flu, which means that the Spanish flu probably killed more than either World War and possibly more than both of them put together. This is Laura Spinney. I am a science journalist, also a novelist and a writer, and I wrote a book called Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. And just like today with COVID-19, New York City was hit hard by the Spanish flu. What was New York like in 1918? So New York in 1918 was quite a modern city. It was quite atomized. Um, It's the peak of the pandemic. People are dying left, right and center. And the city is papered with advice on how to prevent and treat influenza. Things like hand washing, masks, quarantine and self-isolation. What we call social distancing, you know, the collective term for all those measures that keep the sick and the healthy apart and so slow the spread of the disease. Public gatherings were discouraged. Some were restricted. Sounds familiar, right? But that didn't always stop people from going out. Like on October 20th, 1918, when Charlie Chaplin's new film was released. For some New Yorkers, the opening night ticket was too hot to resist. Oh, Charlie Chaplin was so hot. And he made this film called Shoulder Arms, in which uh, a tramp kidnaps the Kaiser. Uh, Good stirring stuff for wartime. And it uh, premiered at the peak of the pandemic in New York City. A bunch of people crowded together in a movie theater during a pandemic. Not the best idea. And yet... Harold Edel, who was the manager of that cinema, uh, I think he wrote in a newsletter um, something like uh, he just congratulated people for turning out in such impressive numbers uh, to watch the film. We think it a most wonderful appreciation of shoulder arms that people should veritably take their lives in their hands to see it. So crowds of people came out to see the film. And Harold, the cinema manager? By the time his words were published, he himself had died of the Spanish flu. Wait a minute. So despite the fact that the flu was ravaging New York City at the time, people thought, you know what? Those of us who are healthy, we want to go see Charlie Chaplin. He's the hottest thing out there. Um, Let's get on with our lives and go to the movies. 
Yeah, I think so. And, and um, you know, maybe you were seeing a little bit of the mentality we're seeing today where people are finding it hard to tolerate um, self-isolation over time. Maybe it's okay at the beginning, but sustaining it gets hard. Um, you know, we find ourselves, I mean, this is a different world. This is a different germ. This is a different disease. But now while I'm living through it, what I'm feeling is, something very ancient about this there's something ancient about the way we react about the way we behave well behave badly it doesn't feel like it's changed since greek times since the greeks described hysteria in these kinds of situation and good behavior in these kinds of situations it all feels very ancient there is something ancient about all of this something almost eerie in the way that history repeats itself Pandemics have always been one of the most dangerous threats to humanity. The 1918 flu wasn't the first, and unfortunately, COVID-19 likely won't be the last. So what lessons can we learn, and what questions do we need to ask about pandemics and how we humans should respond to them? And is it possible to move toward a world where we protect ourselves against another global outbreak? Well, today on the show, we're talking about inoculation on a big scale, how everything from innovative vaccines to changing the way we think and talk about pandemics can help us move toward a safer future. Because solving such a massive problem requires us to look at it from all angles so that the next time a pandemic strikes, we will all be more prepared to fight it. You can feel there's a we in that. It's a threat to us all as a species. What I found fascinating about 1918 was, yes, it was the flu, but there were sort of three stages to the illness. Can you walk us through them? So the pandemic is generally considered to have struck in three waves. It kind of depended where you were in the world. Um, But in general, there was a kind of uh, initial mild wave in the early months of 1918, which wasn't that different from seasonal flu. Um, That went away in the sort of late spring, early summer of 1918. And then the second wave kind of emerged in the last weeks of August of the same year. And that was by far the most vicious wave when most of the deaths took place receded towards the end of 1918. And then there was what's usually considered a third wave uh, in the early months of 1919 that was uh, intermediate in severity between the other two. I mean, hearing that is terrifying. We know it's a different time. We know it's a different virus right now. But the thought of going through multiple waves of this is just kind of awful. Yeah, absolutely. And so right now, though, we are seeing that older people seem to be particularly at risk. Were there groups in 1918 who were more vulnerable than others? In most of the world, overall, the most vulnerable age group were adults aged 20 to 40, um, which is unusual for flu. But it was one of the reasons why that pandemic was so devastating, because it basically purged communities of their breadwinners, of their pillars, their parents, you know, fathers and mothers, uh, at a time when there was no real safety net socially in terms of social welfare. And this, to me, is why it's so fascinating, because it's a pandemic is not just a biological thing, it's social as well. So how did societies pull themselves back together again after the Spanish flu finally died down in the summer of 
1919. So, I mean, they were pretty devastated. Of course, they also had to rebuild after the war in many parts of the world. It was, you know, it was a a humanity-wide trauma. Um, But at the population level, what's really interesting is that humanity quickly bounces back. So you see there's a big dent in the demographic profile of the people who died at that time. Mm. Um, But in the 1920s, there was a baby boom. And one of the reasons for that boom, we think is that the Spanish flu basically purged the world of people who are already sick with other diseases, notably tuberculosis. Hmm. And so what it left behind was a smaller but healthier population. Wow. Darwinian. Yeah, totally. So humanity replenishes itself, but at the cost of huge amounts of individual suffering, of course. Can we talk about the people's mental health after the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned the trauma. Yeah. This sense of uncertainty, long, like slow moving uncertainty is something that I have never experienced in my lifetime. And I can only imagine um, that sort of the way that society functioned after the 1918 pandemic with the flu, I mean, it must have changed the way people thought of being human in the world. So there's quite good um, evidence to suggest that there was a kind of wave of depression that went over the world after the pandemic. Hmm. I think a lot of people, and not just military, uh, civilians as well, were left with a similar kind of post-traumatic stress disorder by this pandemic. I think there was also a sense of sort of survivor's guilt because it was so random. Mm. You know, some died, some didn't. Um, But at the same time, of course, people were just sort of uh, in a state of shock after the war. I mean, it must have been an extremely strange time. So in your book... You actually bring up this term, collective memory, which refers to how we as a society remember our past and remember defining moments like the Spanish flu or now with COVID-19. And I wonder if it sort of serves one of the themes that we're talking about on this episode, which is the concept of inoculation, this idea of being able to protect the population from something that you know is out there, whether that's with a vaccine or potentially a story, a warning that a society can say, you know, look what happened. We have to protect ourselves. Make sure it doesn't happen again. It sounds as though the flu of 1918 was not much of an inoculation for generations uh, ahead of it. <laughs> the, the the memory of it is, is very uh, flimsy, frankly. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I've heard people talk about World War II all the time. We can't let that happen again. We have to protect ourselves, never let it get to that point. Yeah, we do say that a lot. I mean, I tend to be quite cynical about that. I think that uh, just remembering these things, unfortunately, doesn't stop us doing them again. Mm. Um, So I was speaking the other day to Jonathan Quick, public health expert who wrote a book called The End of Epidemics. And he says, well, when it comes to pandemics, we just are in this cycle of... um, of uh, panic and complacency. We'll see if this one puts an end to that. I I personally um, doubt it, but uh, it remains to be seen. We panic when it happens and then we forget as soon as it's gone um, and uh, don't do all the things which, for example, the WHO has been telling us forever to do outside of pandemics in order to protect ourselves better against them. Hmm. Tell me if I'm being too Pollyannish, but in times like this, Is there something that 
can help us maintain a positive and hopeful outlook on life. I mean, I guess I'm looking for words of wisdom for our listeners. Mm. Um, the ancient lesson, I guess, is sur- that we survive. <laughs> mm. Um we do survive, and we, we know the shape of a pandemic curve, an epidemic curve. We, we'll definitely come out of this. We'll just be a different humanity. Um, and, you know, lots of us who are here now may not be here then. I mean, I think that pandemics bring out the very worst and the very best in human nature, both the extremes, you know I mean? So virology was not a field of science before the 1918 pandemic. It took off with the 1920s. We had our first flu vaccines as a result from the 1930s. You know, good things come out, but a lot of people pay the price for it. That's Laura Spinney, science journalist and author. Her book is called Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. On the show today, ideas about inoculation. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to E-Trade. Trading isn't for everyone, but E-Trade is. Whether it's saving for a rainy day or for your retirement, E-Trade has you covered. They can help you check financial goals off your list. And with a team of professionals giving you support when you need it, you can be confident that your money is working hard for you. Get more than just trading with E-Trade. To get started, visit etrade.com slash podcast for more information. E-Trade Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. In Cherokee Nation, a feud has been simmering for more than 180 years. I always joke that the Ridges and the, <laughs> the Rosses were like the Montagues and the Capulets. We've been fighting for so long that people don't really know why, but in Cherokee, we, we know why. That's next week on Code Switch from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. And today on the show, ideas about inoculation. In a perfect world, a vaccine for the coronavirus would be available tomorrow. Everyone would get a shot and the disease would die out. But even if it was available, there are people who would refuse to get it, simply because they don't trust vaccines in general. Opponents of vaccinations staged a protest today at the New York State Capitol. Hundreds of parents and so-called anti-vaxxers rallied in Albany. There are pockets of the country where vaccines aren't happening. And they're not happening because of religious beliefs or misinformation. Health authorities blame misinformation for the outbreak. A well-funded misinformation campaign. And these campaigns continue despite what the science says. The CDC says the measles vaccine is safe and effective. I think it goes down to individual identity of people for whom it's important to believe that they're smarter than doctors. You have to tell them that the overwhelming scientific evidence over many, many years and decades indicate that the vaccine is very safe. So how do you convince more people to get vaccinated? Well, it requires more than developing a way to fight the virus. It requires finding ways to stop rumors. 
Not tabloid gossip or the kind of rumors that are making stock markets crash, but the kind of rumors that affect your health and the world's health. That's anthropologist Heidi Larson on the TED Med stage recently. Rumors have a bad reputation. They're seen as not fact, wrong. But I've studied rumors for years, and one thing I've learned is that they all have a story. In 2003, while working on a vaccine strategy for UNICEF, Heidi traveled to northern Nigeria, where a rumor about the polio vaccine was fueling a national health crisis. The rumors were suspecting that the polio vaccine was actually a contraceptive. It was controlling populations. Maybe it caused AIDS. Maybe it's the CIA spying on them or counting them. I mean, why else would they have people knocking on their door again and again with the same polio vaccine? This wasn't about getting the facts right. This was about trust. It was about broken trust. And by broken trust, Heidi means between Nigeria and the West. This program was perceived as being imposed by Western governments, and it was two years after 9-11, and that heightened the distrust of particularly American-supported interventions. So what happened? Like, how did people react? Well, the governor of the state boycotted the polio vaccination campaign. Hmm. The mothers were not the ones that were refusing the vaccines. It was the governor who had declared the boycott. It was religious leaders who were um, discouraging the vaccination. And it was the fathers who decided. And the fathers were influenced by the religious leaders. And even though some of the mothers really would have been happy to vaccinate, they said, I don't decide. There was no adverse event following a vaccine. There was no specific problem. It was just a rumor and suspicions that this was funded by the West, you know, questioning the motives that led to over 20 countries being reinfected with polio that had been declared polio-free, and it cost the global polio program $500 million just to regain the progress lost because of the 11-month boycott, and how far that Nigerian strain of the polio virus traveled. Just in 2003 and the years after. Between July 2003 and the following summer, 11 months later, that 11-month boycott caused that much damage to the program. And that's just one example, presumably. Absolutely. The Nigeria episode was one of many episodes that I investigated when I was with UNICEF. At that point, I realized I never really had enough time to understand what was driving not just the individual episodes, but why was there an epidemic of these happening around the world? I left UNICEF, and I set up in 2010 what I called the Vaccine Confidence Project. In 2015, we developed a Vaccine Confidence Index. It's a survey trying to get our finger on the pulse of confidence and trust, but also, more importantly, looking at when that trust goes up or down. And one of the things we've learned is in our global monitoring that Europe is the most skeptical region in the world. 
France won the prize, actually, <laughs> by far. Uh, I thought the U.S. was really the, had some of the most skepticism, but boy, I was wrong. So how exactly does this confidence index you've developed measure public trust in vaccines? Well, we've come down to four core questions from strongly agree to strongly disagree. Vaccines are important, they're safe, they're effective, and they're compatible with my religious beliefs. So we get those metrics and we track it over time. And and the whole objective of our group is to basically be more anticipatory because I felt like with the Nigeria situation, we kept brushing it off as rumors and we weren't really listening to people and understanding what were really the grudges at a point before it had become so damaging. And, you know, I really feel like I do understand why some Nigerians were suspicious, but I cannot help but feel frustrated at people who don't vaccinate their children, frankly, because it puts my children at risk. And even though we don't have a vaccine for COVID-19 now, when we do have one, we will have to take collective action for everyone to stay safe, right? And, and that is something we don't always think about enough, I think, especially in Western countries. Absolutely. And I think this cooperative sentiment that you're talking about, kind of altruism, is going to be fundamental to how we handle this current pandemic. Because it is requiring more than ever that we can cooperate with each other. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have a cure. I mean, all we have is human behavior right now. I mean, aside from the treatments for the serious implications. But It's going to be a real test for us, and we'll have huge applications for things like vaccines and and other areas. Do you think it's possible? I mean, look, who knows where things are going to go with the COVID-19 vaccine. But in terms of eradicating or inoculating the world against some of the more old-school viruses and diseases out there, like polio, can we do it? Can we inoculate the world? Can we get rid of those things? Well, uh, inoculating and getting rid of her kind of two different degrees. I think we should be able to get enough people vaccinated that we can keep most of these diseases under control. There are a number of people in the world who can't be vaccinated because of underlying health conditions, and which makes it even more important that people who can be vaccinated are. Um, but it's going to take a planet that wants to cooperate. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we need to remind people how vulnerable we are. I mean, reminding people of the risk of not vaccinating and that it's worth having a second thought before you turn it down. That's Heidi Larson. She's a professor of anthropology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She also runs the Vaccine Confidence Project in London. You can check out her full talk at tedmed.com. On the show today, inoculation. Ideas about how we can protect ourselves from future pandemics. And we just heard about getting people to trust that a vaccine would help, not hurt them. But what if there was a way to stem the spread of a virus by going back to its source? Well, scientists are hunting for the origins of this novel coronavirus. When the latest coronavirus erupted in the city of Wuhan late last year, many scientists turned their attention to bats. So far, experts suspect that bats could be the likely hosts. 
COVID-19 likely came from bats. And actually, bats have been patient zero for a lot of viral outbreaks. Ebola virus, Nipah virus, Hendra virus, SARS, and likely this new coronavirus SARS-2. That's ecologist Daniel Stryker. It's maybe not unexpected that bats have that number of viruses, just given the number of bat species that there are in the world. There's over 1,500 species, so it kind of makes sense that they should have some virus that jump into people. Daniel studies how viruses travel from animals to humans, specifically from bats to people. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's an intense interest in, in knowing whether there is something about the immune system of bats or even like the life history or ecology of bats, which somehow makes viruses that, if they're in people, become more pathogenic. Daniel started focusing on bats back in 2006. He tells his story from the TED Med stage. And that was when I first heard about an outbreak of mysterious illness that was happening in the Amazon rainforest of Peru. The people that were getting sick from this illness, they had horrifying symptoms, nightmarish. They had unbelievable headaches. They couldn't eat or drink. Some of them were even hallucinating, confused and aggressive. The most tragic part of all was that many of the victims were children. And of all of those that got sick, none survived. It turned out that what was killing these people was a virus. But it wasn't Ebola, it wasn't Zika. It wasn't even some new virus never before seen by science. These people were dying of an ancient killer, one that we've known about for centuries. They were dying of rabies. And what all of them had in common was that as they slept, they had been bitten by the only mammal that lives exclusively on a diet of blood, the vampire bat. I mean, when I hear hear that, that is absolutely terrifying. I mean, what was your reaction when you first heard about this? What did you think? Um, it did surprise me in the sense that I, I knew that vampire bat rabies was a thing that happened in the Amazon. But at that point, I didn't think of it as a disease that can enter into a community and then kill 10 or 20 children within the course of about a month. So that really changed my thinking on it and and made me realize there's something going on here. And that was what I wanted to work out. So as a first year graduate student with a vague memory of my high school Spanish class, I jumped onto a plane and flew off to Peru looking for vampire bats. You see, all we had to do was show up at a village and ask around, who's been getting bitten by a bat lately? And people raised their hands. Because in these communities, getting bitten by a bat is an everyday occurrence. It happens every day. And so all we had to do was go to the right house, open up a net, and show up at night and wait until the bats tried to fly in and feed on human blood. Wait, okay, so wait, bats just fly in when people are sleeping and and feed on them? Like, people don't feel them? Right, so the way that people get bitten is is literally as, as horrifying as it sounds. It's, it's bats entering their houses in the night and biting them. Uh, usually bites are on the head or the toes, sometimes on the fingers. And their saliva has anticoagulants in it, so the blood just continues to flow. And so they're not really sucking blood rather just lapping it up as it flows out of the people that they've bitten. Ugh. And I mean, it's it's quite shocking, but you can ask people and they never seem to wake up when this happens. Wow. And partly it's that the bats seem quite good at picking out people that are really deep in sleep. And they probably do that by uh, listening to breathing patterns. So they can work out who's really well asleep huh. and then sneak up to them in a very stealthy way, make a small wound, which doesn't cause too much pain, and then just lap up the blood. Clever little things, huh? They are 
supremely well adapted to a lifestyle of feeding on blood, yes. Since we were working all night long, I had plenty of time to think about how I might actually solve this problem. And it stood out to me that there were really two burning questions. The first was that we know that people are bitten all the time, but rabies outbreaks aren't happening all the time. Every couple of years, maybe even every decade. So if we could somehow anticipate when and where the next outbreak would be, that would be a real opportunity. I mean, we could vaccinate people ahead of time before anybody starts dying. But the other side of that coin is that vaccination is really just a band-aid. At the end of the day, no matter how many cows, how many people we vaccinate, we're still going to have exactly the same amount of rabies up there in the bats. So my second question was this. Could we somehow cut the virus off at its source? If we could somehow reduce the amount of rabies in the bats themselves, then that would be a real game-changer. So step one, Daniel started tracking the bats. One of the things that we've learned is that the virus really can't sit still indefinitely. Rabies survives when it moves from one animal to another. And using genetic testing and tracking the bats' mating patterns, Daniel and his team could kind of forecast where the rabies would go next. When the juvenile males come to maturity, they have to leave the maternal roost, the roost where they were born. And so when they do that, some of them are taking rabies with them. By looking at the genetic structure of the bats, we can get some idea of where the virus is going to spread into the future. And that's when Daniel found something surprising. Until this point, scientists thought the Andes Mountains blocked rabies from moving from one side of the country to the other. The Andes are really tall, about 22,000 feet, and that's way too high for a vampire to fly. Yet, (laughs) when we looked a little bit more closely, we saw in the northern part of Peru a network of valley systems that was not quite too tall for the bats on either side to be mating with each other. And we looked a little bit more closely, sure enough, there's rabies spreading through those valleys just about 10 miles each year, basically exactly as our evolutionary models have predicted it would be. We were actually witnessing in real time a historical first invasion into a pretty big part of South America, which raises the key question, well, what are we going to do about that? And which brings us to step two of Daniel's plan. Maybe we could stop the virus from hitching a ride along with the bats. Vaccinate the bats. So in this case, we have an oral vaccine which is embedded into a gel. And you spread that on to one or more bats, and you release them. Then the other bats will lick the first bat that you put your vaccine on, because they're really social and they groom each other. Uh, They're then consuming the vaccine. And when they consume the vaccine, they get protected against the disease. And so this is potentially a way to spread your vaccine to a much larger number of individuals than you actually had to go out and catch manually. Now we have a whole laundry list of questions. How many bats do we need to vaccinate? What time of the year do we need to be vaccinating? How many times a year do we need to be vaccinating? They're questions that we can't answer in the laboratory. So instead, we're taking a slightly more colorful approach. We're using real wild bats, but fake vaccines. We use edible gels that make bat hair glow and UV powders that spread between bats when they bump into each other. And that's letting us study how well a real vaccine might spread in these wild colonies of bats. Our results so far are incredibly encouraging. They're suggesting that using the vaccines that we already have, we could potentially drastically reduce the size of rabies outbreaks. And that matters, because we're breaking a link in the chain of transmission. I mean, that would be incredible. And of course, like where my mind goes is, would it even be possible to do this with viruses like Ebola or SARS or COVID-19? Or am I just being wildly optimistic here? Yeah, so 
The challenge with some of these other viruses is that there's serious knowledge gaps that need to be resolved before you could really go to the point where we're at with rabies. For a lot of these other diseases, we don't always know with great certainty where they're coming from. Mm. So we might know that it's a bat virus, but we might not know which bat, or there might actually be multiple bats that are involved in circulating those viruses in the wild. The other thing that we, you have to think about in terms of applying ideas like transmissible vaccines is really, is that the right strategy given the disease that you're dealing with? If the introduction from the source is so rare and so unpredictable, then it might be that the best thing that you can do is advise general measures to reduce contacts between bats and humans or use reactive measures. So after the virus emerges, then deal with it as we're currently doing for COVID-19. That's ecologist Daniel Stryker. He studies animal-borne diseases. Check out his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about inoculation. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the American Jewish World Service, working together for more than 30 years to build a more just and equitable world. Learn more at AJWS.org. Hey, Mindy here from the Wow in the World Science Podcast for Kids and Families. If you're looking for fun ways to educate and entertain your kids, we've got you covered five days a week. On Mondays, go on a scientific adventure with Wow in the World, and Tuesdays through Fridays, play along with our new game show, To What's in a Wow. It's Wow in the World from Tinkercast and NPR. Subscribe and listen now. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. On the show today, inoculation ideas about how we can protect and prepare ourselves for future pandemics. And we might get better at coming up with those ideas if we analyze human behavior in a more holistic way. What drives me in most of my research is the question. I'm, I'm attracted to these kinds of questions that, that are all around us. These are, these are experiences that we're all having. It's this is Anupam Jenna. He's a professor at Harvard Medical School. He's also a physician, an economist, and what he calls a creative investigator. I spend most of my time combining the tools of economics and medicine and thinking about applying the statistical tools that economists use, which are called natural experiments, to try to uncover interesting things about how humans behave, at least in healthcare. So as a researcher, Anupam is observing how COVID-19 might change our lives in less obvious ways. For example... In the few days where I was able to leave the house, the roads were had much less traffic than they did. Mm-hmm. Will we see reductions in auto traffic fatalities? And might those be large enough to actually offset the increases in mortality that we observe mm-hmm. from the pandemic itself? Long before the COVID-19 crisis, Anupam was researching human behavior in other scenarios, like whether seniors about to turn 80 or who had just turned 80 got different medical treatment. We looked at people who were 79 years old and 50 weeks compared to people who were 80 years old in two weeks. And we looked at how likely they were, if they had a heart attack, to receive a cardiac bypass surgery. But they only differ by the fact that their age begins with an eight instead of a seven. Or whether the youngest kid in class is more likely to get a psychological diagnosis. Kids who are born in August are, by definition, in many states, going to be the youngest kid in their class. 
And if they're the youngest kid in their class, hmm. that then raises the question, well, how will they be treated by their peers? How will they be treated by their teachers? One way in which they might be treated differently comes to the diagnosis of ADHD. Or another example is if Marathon Day could be bad news for people who aren't even taking part in the race. That was a question that kind of fell into his lap. It starts with my wife. She was running a race, and she asked me to watch her on the race route, which happened to go near the hospital where I work, which is called Massachusetts General Hospital. So I was driving down the main thoroughfare in Boston, which is called Storrow Drive, and I was going to get off the road to watch her run by. And as I was approaching that turnoff, I couldn't get off because the Mm -hmm. road was blocked. And so I came back home, and hours later, my wife saw me, and she remarked to me, well, you know, what happened to all the people who needed to get to Mass General that day? And that was just an offhand comment by her, but it struck a chord in my mind because, you know, that was a small race. That was a five-mile race. If you Mm -hmm. imagine a marathon, marathons are incredibly disruptive. Anupam Jenna picks up the story from the TED Med stage. We sometimes look important facts right in the face and we miss them completely because we aren't trained to ask the right questions. On the day of the Boston Marathon, police followed standard procedure for marathons in any big city. They closed the roads from the suburbs all the way to downtown Boston to make room for the runners, spectators, and the media. Their purpose was to keep the roads free and clear from any auto traffic. That's fine, but what about all of the people who urgently needed to get to the hospital that day? What about the ambulances that couldn't get there because the roads are blocked? If you check the data on how many elderly Americans die of cardiac arrest on the days that big cities host marathons, you discover something quite disturbing. Mortality rates tend to run about 15% higher on the days that cities hold marathons compared to the surrounding days. And by implication, when we think about public health, we may miss many important life-or-death facts all around us. I think we miss these facts because seeing is not the same thing as looking. Being a casual observer is not the same thing as being a thoughtful observer and analyzing what you see. And as a result, I think that we're at risk of overlooking important facts in many healthcare environments because for the most part, we are not trained to think in larger, creative terms. I've made a deliberate practice of thinking about healthcare issues and situations through a big-picture point of view that relies not just on medical data, but on the frameworks of economics, sociology, statistics, and yes, even common sense. It's about a new way of looking at the world, a way that can reveal surprising new insights and valuable new truths. The secret, I find, is to ask creative questions, unusual questions. And sometimes these questions can come out of left field, where the narrow definition of medicine is concerned. But other times, these questions make perfect sense when viewed in the wider context of public health as a whole. And with the right training, each of us can be taught to think differently and find the most interesting of experiments in our everyday lives. Our everyday lives, you just use that phrase. 
Our everyday lives have been absolutely upended by the coronavirus, how different countries are asking their citizens to behave in terms of how different healthcare systems across the world are deciding who to treat and how. All kinds of big societal experiments going on. It feels like, as someone who has tried to quantify and explain why certain things happen, how do you view the pandemic? I'll say a couple of things have occurred to me since the pandemic has started. So one is whether or not we're going to see delays in care for people who actually need to get to the hospital quickly. I think people who are having chest pain, people who are having shortness of breath, people who are having stroke-like symptoms, those kinds of people may be delaying care and not getting to the hospital as fast as they should. If that's the case, then it tells us that the impact of this pandemic is not just limited to the people who get the disease, but to all these other people who are afraid to seek care and experience worse clinical outcomes as a result of those delays in care. We'll be able to study that soon. I think you know within the year, we'll know whether or not that happened or not. That is an interesting thing to think about. Okay, so here's mine. Mine is like, we know that the air is actually getting cleaner because there are fewer flights because of this pandemic. Will it sufficiently lower pollution in urban areas to the point where it improves people's respiratory functioning so that actually fewer people die of coronavirus because more people have healthy respiratory systems? That, that's, that's a beautiful idea. I, there's two <laughs> things to that. So one is that Fewer people might have exacerbations of asthma because there's less pollutants in the air. And we, we know from other studies, high-quality studies, what that relationship looks like. You know, how many fewer people will have asthma exacerbations and deaths when the air quality is better? And then on top of that, could our lungs' response to coronavirus be slightly better because the air quality is also better? And there's some theories about how air quality might affect individual's predisposition to have complications related to to infection. So I, I think, go ahead, give okay, me some more there's, ideas. There's more. That's a yeah. good one. Okay, so what about divorce rates? We've already seen a spike in divorce rates in China in recent weeks. And you could imagine seeing that happen in countries around the world because couples are cooped up in isolation, driving each other bananas. I think that that's also a great one. The other thing that I've heard is, uh, and there's some data to support this, whether or not we'll observe greater rates of, of childbirth nine months from now. I'll tell you the closest thing that we've looked at that's related to what you just suggested. It's obviously, uh, it's a difficult thing, but we have looked at whether rates of spousal abuse increase because people are basically stuck in the house. A friend of mine sent me an email, which was, his thought was, might there be problems with people who have history of alcoholism? Because Mm. if AA meetings can't happen in person, what's going to be the impact of the absence of those meetings? And there's other such meetings that happen that help people live healthier lives than they otherwise would be able to in the absence of those meetings. So this is something that could be studied. You can, you might see what happens as a result. Yeah. You know, I think we, everybody says this generation of kids is stuck to their screens. I think that's definitely going to happen. But I also think we're seeing the Internet and web being used in ways that it was meant to be used in terms of sharing ideas and arts and connection. So I think we're going to see, like, a sea change in the way people use the web. I don't know how you quantify that one, though. So maybe but that's quantifiable. You yeah? can look and see. Yeah, you could because the the census does surveys and they look at how people sp- allocate their time, whether or not they work from home four days a week, five days a week. So you might see that 
working at home one day a week increases post-pandemic compared to before. We started this episode out with talking to science writer Laura Spinney about the lessons learned from the 1918 flu epidemic or pandemic. And, you know, she said the same thing, that you can't, yes, there was a spike in births. Yes, there was a spike in depression. But she was like, you know, but also keep in mind, there were also all sorts of other factors that could have played into things that happened a decade, two decades, even 50 years later. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, as we close the episode with you, what do you imagine potentially the lessons will be 10, 20, 50 years from now? What are, or, or maybe we don't know what they are, but what are the factors that you're going to be looking at? That's like, you might as well have asked me what's the meaning of life. Let's, let me answer the meaning of life first, and then I'll... And then <laughs> you know, I think there's a lot of things that will come out of this. Um, one is it will be a reckoning of the importance of evidence to guide policy. The central mm-hmm. policy from the federal government has not been what many people would have liked. And part of that is it views as being a dearth of reliance on evidence. So perhaps this will put a price on what it means to society if we don't use the best available evidence. And that may change things. I think the second thing is what's to me is going to be most interesting is that we have engaged and we have started down a path of intense social distancing And when we get past this, whenever that is, we will look back and we will think to ourselves, did we underreact, did we overreact, or did we appropriately react? And what worries me is that we'll actually never know the answer to that question. Because if much fewer people die from this pandemic than people predict, is it because they overpredicted or because we responded effectively and were able to shut the thing down before it could uh, kind of take flight? And I don't know that we'll know the answer to that question. And it's challenging because when this happens again, we're at risk of the same sort of global economic turmoil that has occurred. Can we be trained? Can we be taught to ask these larger creative questions as a matter of everyday routine? Absolutely. I think that these skills can be learned and that we would greatly benefit from doing so. And it is in situations like these that I think that natural experiments can illuminate the most about our social behavior. There are amazing insights around us just waiting to be discovered. All we need to do is learn how to look for them. Thank you. That's Anupam Jenna. He's a physician and an economist at Harvard Medical School. You can watch his full talk at tedmed.com. As we wrap up this week's episode, we want to share with you a sort of audio postcard. Greetings. My name is Susan Pinker. Hi, this is Letigasca. My name is Dixon Chibanda. This is Dawn Wasik. Hello. A psychologist, an entrepreneur, a psychiatrist, and a librarian. All past TED speakers, letting us know how they're doing during the COVID-19 crisis. I live and work in Zimbabwe. Talking to my phone from my living room in Montreal, Canada, where I live. Today is a sunny day in Manhattan. And I am sitting in my apartment. And I'm currently sitting in my bedroom here in La Crosse, Wisconsin. My husband and I, he is from Argentina and I am Mexican. So we have seen how our communities in each country and also in New York have reacted to COVID. 
Uh, although there are differences in how each community experiences this pandemic, all of our communities have a common interest. Tiger King. <laughs> The nine-year-old Annie, who lives across the street, had put up a giant poster of a rainbow in her window that I'm looking at right now, and she'd written in marker, ça va bien aller under the rainbow, which means everything is going to be all right. Our library put out a call for a bear hunt, and so people put teddy bears or other stuffed animals up in their windows so that families could take a walk and see those bears. And I think it was a nice expression of love and support for one another. And what's interesting to me is people want to talk about loneliness a lot more than they did before because suddenly we are all facing social isolation. So it's no longer taboo to admit that you feel lonely. In my case, I really miss my three grown kids who live in different cities and can't travel to come home to visit. Um, they're also working on the front lines, so though I'm proud, I have to admit I'm a bit worried too. Obviously, I am very concerned about the large number of businesses that are closing. And I know that when a business closes, it impacts dozens of families. I'm worried about some of our community members who aren't getting paid right now, um, who are worried about their kids uh, getting enough to eat every day. So my worry that my six-year-old is getting too much screen time while I'm trying to do online meetings or other library work seems kind of petty in comparison to that concern about getting enough to eat and maintaining their homes. Something that has given me immense pleasure or joy. <laughs> I would say that um, definitely my partner. Spending more time with my partner has been good. I am super lucky to have him. And also puppy videos are the best, especially now. <laughs> and another pleasure is listening to my husband, Martin, practice jazz guitar. Um, here I am, I'm going downstairs so you can hear it for a few bars. The mindset that I try to have is showing compassion and that this is something that will come to pass. Like any storm, this will pass. And what I hope is we can learn something from all of this. We can learn to reconnect again. I'm hoping that through this crisis, we can rediscover what social connectedness is, is all about. Thank you. That's Susan Pinker, Leticia Gasca, Don Wachik, and Dixon Chibande. You'll be hearing much more from Susan and Don on new episodes coming soon. Thanks so much for listening to our show this week on Inoculation. If you'd like to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousi, J.C. Howard, Katie Monteleone, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, Kara Brown, and Hannah Bolaños with help from Daniel Shukin. 
Our intern is Matthew Cloutier. Our theme music was written by Ramtin Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.